to Nature Revisited, a podcast that explores our relationship with the natural world. It consists of interviews, stories, and discussions that highlight the notion that nature is not a place one goes to, but rather a place one is already a part of, that we are nature. On this edition, I would like to welcome Chris Primazio to the podcast. Chris is a surfer and co-founder and CEO of the International Surf Therapy Organization. It was after interviewing Bron Taylor for the episode, The Sacred in Nature, that the subject of surfing came up. Bron shared with me his love of surfing and how surfing therapy was becoming a wonderful way for people to heal by reconnecting with nature, and in particular, the ocean. This led me to discover just how fascinating this age-old practice of riding waves really is. They have discovered wall paintings in caves that date back to the 12th century, Polynesians surfing. Even the ancient cultures of Peru were known to catch a wave or two. James Cook, when he discovered the island of Hawaii, found the locals surfing. And modern surfing is directly connected to the island. Two of America's better-known authors, Mark Twain and Jack London, wrote about surfing after their visits to Hawaii. It was Jack London's description of surfing that brought it to the American mainland, where it has become part of the Southern Californian culture. More recently, surfing therapy has become a part of a growing group of nature-based therapies that are helping people to heal. I would like to welcome Chris Primazio, co-founder and CEO of the International Surf Therapy Organization. My name is Stefan Van Orden, and this is Nature Revisited. I'm doing really good. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Thank you so much for having me and highlighting surfing and surf therapy on your really cool podcast. I love Nature Revisited. I've listened to several of them, and I'm kind of excited you're going to the ocean on this one. we got to get you out surfing. I think when, when people think about nature instinctually, they think of going into the woods, right, or going into the mountains. I I think we think of nature as land-based. Of course, nature is all things, including ourselves. We are nature. The ocean actually has, you know, a much larger part here on Earth than land. Let's start with where you are from and a little bit of your cultural background and how much did nature influence you in your early life? Well, I was born in Seattle, Washington, speaking of mountains and forests and very large trees. Pacific Northwest is kind of known for its rain, 
and breathtaking mountain ranges, including Mount Rainier. My dad would take us camping every summer several times. He taught me how to fish, how to catch clams and Dungeness crab, all of the indigenous delicacies of the Pacific Northwest. Every summer, we would also go to Hawaii, stay with my aunties and uncles and play on the beach and in the ocean with our cousins. I, I think as far as cultural background, my dad did such a great job of keeping our Hawaiian culture alive and well while I grew up on the mainland. And, of course, Hawaiians refer to any other piece of land other than Hawaii, the mainland. And he did it primarily through his extraordinary cooking, all authentic Hawaiian or Filipino dishes. He was always combining the, the freshest ingredients that he grew from his garden and spices, and he really showed his love through his cooking. So I was constantly reminded of my Asian and Polynesian backgrounds through cooking in spite of the geography that I grew up on, which, you know, I'm connected to nature because of where I grew up and I'm connected to my cultural background, mainly because of my father. So when did you first learn that you had a fascination with water and even more so the ocean? Well, Washington State happens to be the home of 8,000 lakes. Washington State also butts up against the Puget Sound, and the Puget Sound is just an inlet from the Pacific Ocean. I grew up swimming and catching fish and dropping crab pots in the Puget Sound or wakeboarding or even skiing in the mountains. That's just frozen water, right? And, of course, camping, we would always camp on the rivers because we would use the rivers as a source for food. As much as I loved and was surrounded by water in Washington, it was really the Pacific off of Hawaii that made me fall in love with the ocean. I loved the warm water and snorkeling at Hanama Bay and jumping off the rocks at Waimea on Oahu or the hidden caves in Kauai or the beaches in Maui and the extraordinary waterfalls on the Big Island, you couldn't help but fall in love with the ocean during any kind of trip to Hawaii. I mean, anybody who goes to Hawaii, okay. if they didn't love the ocean before, you will fall in, deep in love with it once you have visited paradise. So when did you first learn to surf? And did it captivate you from the very start? I remember watching surfers in Hawaii. You and I have talked about this. It just didn't look like something I could do. I didn't see myself when I was young. None of my aunties or uncles surfed, so I also didn't have an instructor. It's so ironic to me because much of the surfing culture is rooted in the Hawaiian Islands, but I couldn't picture myself participating because of such little representation of not just Hawaiians, but also girls. You know, it wasn't just what I saw in the surf contest or what who I saw surfing on the waves in Hawaii, but it was also what you see or saw in every surf brand ad 
it was always blonde hair, blue-eyed, typically men, almost always men, but, but there were always some women, and frankly, the women were usually wearing a bathing suit with a surfboard next to them as opposed to actually surfing on the waves, and those were always typically men and men that were blonde hair and blue eyes. And again, going back to what I said earlier, right, so much of the history of surfing comes from Hawaii or Polynesian. So it was really interesting not to see Hawaiians, not to see women surfing while I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. I never saw myself in an ad, in a magazine, I'm aging myself, but back in our day, we had newspaper ads. You never saw person of color, and you very rarely saw a woman surfing. So I think it's, I think it's so powerful. Representation really, really matters. Because as a Hawaiian Filipino spending every summer in Hawaii and never thinking that surfing was for me, that is exact, that's a big part of what influenced me to never surf. It, it would have never occurred to me that surfing was for me. So you've kind of answered my next question. Why did you come to surfing so late? Partially what I said, when you don't have people around you who surf. In Seattle, Washington, I was three and a half, kind of almost four hours away from any coastline that you would surf at typically in, in Washington State. So that was another barrier to entry. I, it was nowhere near me. I didn't have people I knew who surfed. And even in Hawaii, where you are surrounded by waves, again, if you don't know people who surf, you just don't surf. So it's really interesting. Although I grew up on lakes and rivers and was always in, in water, I just didn't find surfing until I moved to Manhattan Beach, much like what we see in surfing today, there is still always a barrier to entry if you are not geographically close to waves and if you don't have people who will loan you surfboards or wetsuits or even give you instructions and lessons on how to surf. So, so what was it about surfing? that has such a strong draw for you? I say this a lot, but the ocean, the ocean just, it, it really saved me. When I first started surfing 11 years ago, I was losing and ultimately lost the most important person in my life, who is my father. And during those first five years of surfing, I, at the same time, was discovering the ocean in a much more intimate way. So the sea really supported my, my broken heart. Today, still, after losing my father in 2016, the ocean continues to help me heal. So it, it really had to do a lot with my father and that great loss. Not that the ocean replaced him in any way, but it has certainly helped me, and it is a place of refuge for me. When I watch somebody surf, I'm fascinated by this sense of it being really invigorating. Just how invigorating is it to ride a wave? <laughs> Such a good word to describe it. Every neuron in your body is lit up 
and your synapses are firing. Physically and mentally, you are fully engaged in the activity. A lot of people refer to this as flow state. You can't even think about any noise and nonsense that our daily lives produce. It's The kicker is you feel this relaxed state of mind and you are at peace. At the same time, you are satisfying this adrenaline junkie <laughs> that a lot of surfers have. And it's, it, you know, it's just so unique. It's, it's difficult to describe. It's everything that you see. Surfer is fully engaged on every level, physically, mentally, emotionally. And at the same time, we're somehow at peace out there. Can you share with us the spiritual connection you have when you're on the ocean and you're surfing? And do you ever experience a sense of the sacred when you're on the water? I grew up with a deeper connection to nature. I I just feel like I'm spiritual myself in a lot of ways. I I believe it's sacred because while sitting on your surfboard, you're reminded that there's something much bigger than yourself and you have faith in this thing that is so much larger than yourself. And I think growing up in a Catholic home and that was what I thought God was something or someone bigger than myself. And I, I just think it's spiritual every time you paddle out. So there's this sense of sacredness because it is undefinable. And you, are, you do have faith in something, even though obviously you can see the ocean, you can feel the ocean, you can smell the ocean, you can taste it. There are all of these, your senses tell you that this exists, this is real, and yet the experience that you take away from it is so undefinable. I also think that people are starting to realize we have to reconnect. I think that the reason there is this drive and, and move to connect spiritually is, frankly, it's our climate crisis. And I think that global warming is a consequence of our disconnect. We are all one. We are all connected. Yeah, I think there's a lot of spiritual and sacred experiences that you actually physically feel while you're, while you're out there. I do call it my church often. Can you describe the strong sense of community with surfers? Talk about that culture of surfing and how nature plays in the way surfers relate to each other. I think I touched on that a little bit there because we are all one. But absolutely, there is a strong sense of community. I think there's this familiarity with your fellow surfers in the lineup, an undefinable and instant connection when you're sharing the ocean. If you've taken the time to learn about the history and culture of surfing, then you know it's rooted in societal and spiritual significance. You develop a healthy respect for the surfing and, more importantly, the considerations for the ocean and all living creatures in and around it, and hopefully your fellow surfers. So whether you meet the surfers that are next to you in the lineup formally, you really do carry an unspoken bond with other surfers. And that's the sense of community. 
That means protecting the ocean and all the living creatures in it. That means protecting your fellow surfers. If you see that they get in trouble, could be hurt or something's happening, you have this strong pull and sense to be a steward, uh, certainly the ocean, but also just a steward of humanity. You do have this sense of having each other's back. To me, that also includes having the ocean's back, taking care of the ocean. Does ritual and ceremony, does, does that play a part in, in surfing and in the surfing community? Well, there's a couple ways to think about that. I think when I think about ritual and ceremony when it comes to, to surfing is I think about the traditional paddle-outs. Paddle-outs are this beautiful celebration of, of life for surfers who have departed. We take out flowers, and very often people will take out the ashes of our dearly departed, and we carry them out into the ocean. We, we make a circle and we join hands, say a lot of loving words, mix the water up, and then everybody throws the flowers into the center of the circle and also the ashes go into the center of the circle. So when I think of rituals and ceremonies of surfing, I, I think of paddle outs, which are spiritual and a beautiful way that surfers honor the lives of those who have left us. And I personally can't think of a better way to be remembered. It really is spiritual. So let's shift to surfing therapy, something that you are very deeply involved in. Uh, and there's a growing number of nature-based therapies that people are using to help people. When did people first start thinking of the contribution that surfing could make when it comes to helping in a therapeutic way? Hopefully since surfing was discovered. <laughs> I, I would like to believe that individuals have benefited from the healing effects of being on the ocean. But, you know, I guess in modern times, according to our definition of surf therapy, which is a method of intervention combining surfing and instruction with group activities to promote psychological, physical, and psychosocial well-being. I know organized groups were taking out people who were blind back in the 80s. By definition or those definitions, it, it wasn't that long ago, but, you know, the eternal optimist in me believes that from the beginning of time, people were utilizing surfing for the therapeutic benefits of it. But, you know, I, I think I've said this to, to you before as we've chatted, humans have used the healing powers of being outdoors and physically active since the beginning of time. And even if they didn't define it or feel the need to research the benefits, we know surf therapy is an emerging field to aid in our mental and physical well-being. The International Surf Therapy Organization, we are positioned perfectly to expand the knowledge and benefits of surf therapy. So how would you describe surf or surfing therapy? And just how rapidly is it growing? I think a lot of people would describe it differently, but I say surf therapy is a community building and bonding experience. Most surf therapy programs don't emphasize surfing 
because it's about getting the most vulnerable populations down to the beach and having a shared experience. Doing something difficult together can include putting on a wetsuit and even just getting into the ocean. Those shared experiences do accelerate the bonds that the individuals, the participants are experiencing down at surf therapy programs. And the reason I say we don't try to emphasize surfing, and it is much more about community building and bonding and sharing and safe spaces, is because not every participant will surf. That doesn't mean it was a fail for the participant or the program. If you say, hey, do you want to go surfing? Uh, you know, it, we're bringing everybody down. We're going surfing. Of course, that sounds exciting. That sounds fun. It's, it's a conduit for us to get people to get to come down there. And what ultimately ends up happening is bonding and sharing <laughs> safe spaces and circles. But, but they do bond through those shared experiences, whether they surf or not. I think that's really special I, as far as how fast is surf therapy growing. Gosh, a world pandemic heightened and highlighted the need for mental health support, especially in communities most impacted by structural racism or inequalities or discrimination. So there's no surprise that surf therapy grew exponentially during COVID and certainly over the past five years since we have been together but I would say what is so unique and special is that surf therapy programs prioritize these vulnerable populations. And so diversity, equity, and inclusion are built into the foundation of the entire surf therapy sector. It's, it's really phenomenal. When you think about our healthcare institutions, not just in our country, but maybe in the world, you have this alternative methodology to support the global crisis that is our mental health crisis. And all of these therapy programs are nonprofits delivering their services for free. And through the International Surf Therapy Organization are sharing their best practices with the intention that everybody raise the bar and everybody do better and everybody keep everybody safe. I just have never seen that before in healthcare institutions. And this year's conference is this idea of reimagining mental health. What does mental health care look like, mental health support look like? I would describe it much more as a community building and bonding than surfing, but we also know surfing is, is an incredible vehicle to get people down to the beach. Yeah, it's about being in nature. It's about being outdoors. Some of our teenagers who don't want to get away from their video games, if you say, hey, let's go surfing, it's not, let's go get exercise. And again, they might not even stand up on a surfboard, which that is not the definition of surfing, but they might not get on a surfboard. But they will have spent hours and hours outdoors, near ocean, near the water. It is so much about the healing powers of the ocean. So how did you become involved? in surf therapy? I got involved with the therapeutic aspects of surfing almost immediately, as I mentioned before, to kind of soothe my heartache. But as far as surf therapy programs go, it was through volunteering. So the same year I started surfing in 2011, I started volunteering. 
and I started volunteering at surf therapy organizations. Gosh, you know, first of all, everybody who's listening, please volunteer. Giving back to your community is really the greatest gift that you can participate in. And honestly, as deeply connected as I was personally to surfing, how much it was healing me, I have to say surfing never meant more than when I started to give it away and started to share it. Working with the Wounded Warrior Battalion, children who have autism or who have Down syndrome or children who are blind or all walks of life. I've worked with almost 15 surf therapy programs around the world now volunteering. What an honor to just go out and do what I love and share what I love with other people. And now it's my job. Who would have thought that? Anyway, I guess the moral of the story is volunteer. Tell us about how you became involved in the International Surf Therapy Organization and and your role there. Really super proud to be a co-founder of the International Surf Therapy Organization. You know, to be a co-founder, and then later I was elected as the CEO. Yeah, it's a pretty big involvement here. (laughs) We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We're dedicated to driving understanding through research and promoting better practices through collaborations. And the health benefits of the sea, or certainly being outdoors, as we just discussed, are really starting to take center stage. I think healthcare institutions and practitioners and and medical staff members are really taking the initiative to discuss the health benefits of being outdoors. I think what therapy programs worldwide are doing so well is helping to solve the social and emotional challenges amongst the most vulnerable populations. And I think I said this, but, you know, they are delivering their services for free. So ISTO, at ISTO, we wanted to create an information hub for the sector and help facilitate knowledge sharing and collaboration in the practitioner community. And we do believe that universal recognition, training, and prescription therapy would aid in our mental health crisis. So we do things like hold global conferences. Our global conference this year is going to take place. Again, we're bringing it back to Los Angeles in the South Bay, more specifically Manhattan Beach, October 6th through the 10th. And October 10th, for anybody who's listening out there and would like to participate in our global paddle out, we are going to do a paddle out for World Mental Health Day and October 10th also happens to be World Inclusion Day. So we are going to gather everybody from around the world and paddle out. So how can someone learn more about the International Surf Therapy Organization, your organization? Well, our website, internationalsurftherapy.org, and we're on social media. Join us for our our global conferences I just mentioned. And if you are on any of the six continents that are delivering surf therapy around the world, if you're near a beach, please reach out to our website and find a surf therapy program to go volunteer at and help them out. 
So finally, where are some of your favorite places that you have surfed? I love this question because, uh, you know what, I would say that my favorite place to surf is wherever I am at the moment. I can actually answer this better by telling you my favorite waves. I caught my first 12-foot wave in El Salvador, and I will never forget that one. Some of the most memorable waves I've caught were in Byron Bay in Australia because I rode every single wave that day with, uh, I don't know, 10 dolphins. The longest and biggest wave I've ever caught was in Jeffreys Bay, Africa. But I have to say, I think the most satisfying wave I ever caught, or my favorite, it was on the North Shore of Oahu back in 2019. So right after Thanksgiving, I was in Oahu, I was on the North Shore in Oahu, and I was surfing, and I sliced open my head, cut an artery, and lost nearly two liters of blood at one of my favorite breaks on the North Shore. So after 17 stitches, and flying back to California and 12 days out of the ocean, which is probably the most I've ever been out of the ocean since I started surfing. I got on a plane. I flew back to Hawaii. I got the stitches removed from the doctor that I so trusted. And I went right back to the spot where it happened because I wanted to create a new memory. I was out there and one of The guys who had helped me two weeks prior recognized me in the lineup and asked me how I was doing and what happened. So I told him everything, and he said, you get the next wave. And he told all of his friends in the lineup, we're going to give her the next wave. It was a solid four-foot Hawaiian. I wrote it with so much gratitude and awareness. It was almost like watching myself catch that, that wave. Yeah, those are some of my most memorable waves. You know, I'm a big fan of, it's not always the destination necessarily, it's it's definitely the company. And I'm really lucky to say that most of my favorite professions had nothing to do with catching the biggest or longest waves, and it had everything to do with the brilliant human beings I get to surf with. enjoyed my conversation with Chris Primazio. If you want to learn more about surfing therapy, please visit the International Surfing Therapy Organization.org. The music for this edition is Blue Water, a Hawaiian instrumental composition. If you enjoyed this edition, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, on our website, nordenproductions.com. If you already follow Nature Revisited, please consider showing your support by rating and reviewing this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Nature Revisited would like to thank David Lipo, for his generous and continued support. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. 
And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature. <laughs>